Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening. Welcome to The Nest on Clubhouse. My name is Jim Chu in San Francisco, California, and I'm the CEO of Untapped Global. Our goal is to connect international investors with entrepreneurs in frontier markets, including Africa, Southeast Asia, and South Asia. We host weekly discussions on the Clubhouse about entrepreneurship and investing. And once a month, we host pitch sessions with startups and investors crossing borders all over the world. You can find out more and follow us at Untapped Global on Twitter and LinkedIn, and join our WhatsApp group by going to untapped-global.com and clicking on Engage. And today's topic is alternative investment models for Africa. A few weeks ago, we hosted a conversation around whether venture capital was the right model for investing in Africa. Um, won't try to summarize a very complicated conclusion there, but one of the questions that came up and we started to discuss was what are alternative models to venture capital in Africa? And so by popular demand, we're bringing back this topic and going into a little more detail. Just as a note for everybody, this conversation is being recorded and streamed live on LinkedIn. So if you're interested in, or if you have friends who are not on Clubhouse or interested in listening in, they can go to LinkedIn, look for Untapped Global, follow us, and you can comment and uh, listen to the live stream there. And we will do our best to call out different comments and, and questions in the, in the comment box on uh, LinkedIn. So with that, uh, perhaps we can just jump over to um, Gita, Looney, and Christoph, and maybe you guys can introduce yourselves very quickly. Looney, would you like to start? Sure. Hi, everybody. Uh, my name is Looney. I am a serial entrepreneur turned investor. Uh, I spent 20 years in tech, and then almost 10 years ago, jumped over to the world of social good. Uh, did that in a form that's called Fledge. Fledge is now a global network of impact accelerators. And a whole bunch of other things popped out of that, including the Angel Accelerator Program, a holding company in Africa, uh, and uh, a nonprofit that turns philanthropy into impact investing. You can find all of that at, uh, at lunarmobiscuit.com, but just, you just search Looney on Google, you'll find me. Yeah, now I have to ask, uh, Looney, that's, that's a, is that your formal name? Is that your official full name? Uh, it is not my legal name. It is what everybody but my parents and, and sister call me. Gotcha. And have been since like 1984, 85. It's a very memorable name. Yeah, that's why I kept it. Great. Glad you could join us today. Gita, over to you. Uh, hi, uh, everyone. My name is Gita Bamaratnam, which is my, the, the only name my parents call me by. Um, and uh, it was often the name I was yelled at uh, by as well. So um, I am in the uh, advisory space as well as I'm quite an active angel investor on the continent, though, uh, thanks to Jim uh, and, and The Nest, which is a fantastic show hosted by, by Untapped. Um, I just made an investment in a entrepreneur I met on the on the nest in Indonesia but other than that my entire portfolio is in African businesses and African entrepreneurs the focus that I have predominantly tends to be in um, financial services in healthcare in education um, I have made one investment on the creative side and um, I'm having some conversations about some other transactions in that space the background that I come from is a private equity background, which I was in for almost 15 years uh, in Africa, predominantly, but also in Latin America and Asia. 
Um, and before that, I had a career in uh, corporate finance in a KKR-backed uh, uh, insurance group. Uh, and home is Botswana. There's not a lot that is happening on the venture side yet in Botswana, uh, but I do sit on the investment committee of a $50 million SME uh, investment fund, which is investing only in Botswana, called Aleo Capital. Thanks for having me today, Jim. Great, thanks for joining us. And uh, over to you, Christoph. Yeah, hi guys. So if I had a nickname, it would probably be the French Bucky, a French guy in <laughs> Cape Town, uh, been in Africa for nearly 20 years, came as part of a management buyout and, and then became a, an entrepreneur at Tech Space. I'm the CEO of a tech company called Metis. So we effectively focus on digitalizing the private equity space uh, with you know clients from sovereign funds to small VC firms, and uh, do software development mostly for for tech startups in Africa. Um, that got us to develop a venture studio activity, and therefore a sort of a seed fund uh, business. So we have half a dozen company in portfolio, and um, uh, an incubator in Cape Town called Sat Labs. And one of our portfolio company is Africa Arena which is um, known for supporting the acceleration of um, the tech ecosystem in Africa. So what we try to do at Africa and is connect investors and cooperate with the great founders and uh, you know, maximize the opportunity for them. And uh, yeah, we're very involved in the VC industry on the continent. So I'm, I'm glad you're calling this, uh, this series of talk, Jim. It's, it's very informative and, and you know, it's the best way to talk to you actually. So glad to be here with yeah, you guys. Yeah, very glad that you could <laughs> join us. And I, I just want to note that, um, you know, we hope that it's informative, but we also want to try to keep it informal as well. This really is a conversation. And I, I hope to include a lot of voices that, um, that we may not have initially invited, but uh, have a lot of knowledge and experience to contribute. So with that, I would like to call out uh, to those in the audience, if you do have uh, comments or thoughts you want to contribute to those conversations or questions, feel free to raise your hand and we'll do our best to bring you into the conversation with a short intro. Um, I'd also like to introduce two of my colleagues, Lindsay Strom and Kat George, who are also on the, on the floor right now. Um, they're active in managing these conversations and really control what's going on with uh, the topics and everything else. So if you guys want to say hi really quickly, Lindsay and Kat. Thanks, Jim. Yeah, hi, guys. Good to see familiar faces on the panel and also in the audience. Um, and thanks to Gita for the call out on the nest. Amazing to hear that an investment came of that. So um, yeah, thanks everyone for being here and hope to see you all again very soon, both on these conversations and on uh, the nest episodes every Thursday. And, and Lundy is uh, actually organizing uh, an interesting trip. Uh, we'll be organizing multiple trips to um, Cape Town uh, that was what we call a South Africa showcase to really bring uh, and show investors uh, what type of investment opportunities are available uh, in South Africa, especially companies that are going global with their digital business models. So if you guys are interested in that, please give us, um, give us a ring or, or send us a message and um, we'll tell you more about uh, the South Africa showcase. And then with that, let's jump into the topic. So alternative investment models for Africa. So once again, uh, a few weeks ago, we discussed uh, whether venture capital was the right model for investing in Africa. And a really quick summary, uh, there are certainly uh, businesses that have huge benefits for, uh, to, to have venture capital involved, especially those are asset lights and, and high growth. 
but there are also uh, a lot of companies and a, a very large economy, especially from the informal economy of businesses that um, don't fit the venture capital model in terms of being able to take investment from VCs. And so what kind of investment models are there to service those companies and unlock value there? Um, and we, we touched on a little bit on some of the alternatives. Lumi has some interesting models already in place, but we'd like to go into more depth on what some of those investment models look like and what others that may not be already on the market may look like as well. So with that, uh, I'd like to send it over to you, Looney, first and uh, hear a little bit about what you're doing already in the, in the continent. All right, so I have two models that I work with. Uh, I have the Fledge model and the Africa Eats model. Uh, the older one is fledged, so let's go there. Um, uh, it's a model that works for all companies everywhere that are not going to be the next Google or Facebook. Um, it's it's a it's broader than just Africa. Uh, the idea is um, if you if you're investing in an area, whether it's a, a geography or a sector that doesn't have a history of exits, then you shouldn't be using the California capitalism model that that uh, investors only get money when there's an acquisition. So the alternative is that you invest in looking at their revenues. Uh, and the idea is that you're gonna share a piece of revenues or they're gonna share a piece of revenues back to you as the investor uh, and enough that makes it worthwhile doing the, doing the uh, investment and not so much that it'll kill the company. Uh, and this comes in three forms. The simplest form is just a straight up revenue share. I, and we'll just do round numbers. I give you $100,000 from investor to company. You promise to give me back 5%. It's usually a single digit number. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. Uh, so we'll just take an average uh, 5% of revenues. And I get, I get those until I'm repaid uh, somewhere between 150 and $200,000. So you bake in a one and a half to two X return. And for those of you who are trained on the 10 X path, remember, Nine out of 10 times, you're not getting that 10X anyway. So you're really only aiming for doubling your money anyway. So, so this doubling makes sense. So that's the simplest one. And strangely enough, the largest fund I've ever found that uses uh, anything revenue-based, that's the structure they use. It's a, it's a Tim Draper company out of London. I always forget the next, the other name. It's Draper something out of London. Uh, smallest check size, $5 million. The next most common one, or actually probably the most common version of this, is just a revenue-based loan. And we call it a loan, but it not, has neither an interest rate nor a maturity date. It's a, it looks and feels like a loan. It's, again, uh, you hand over $100,000. and the company A lot of people would call that mezzanine, right? Uh, mezzanine is a really similar structure. But uh, we call it here in Seattle, we call it a revenue-based loan. There was a company founded um, somewhere around 2009 called the Revenue-Based Loan Company. It got renamed Lighter Capital. Uh, Pre-pandemic, they were doing about a million dollars a week. They've done a few hundred million dollars of these loans. The, the cash flow is the same. They hand over a few hundred thousand dollars to a company, but we'll just do round numbers. Let's say they hand over a hundred thousand to a company. And they then say, you have to uh, take five, six, seven, eight percent of your revenues. You have to stick it into this. Well, basically, you got to stick your revenues into a shared bank account. We will take out five, six, seven, eight percent, some fixed amount, uh, until we're paid back one and a half to one point eight times, so one hundred and fifty to one hundred eighty thousand dollars. Those are the terms. The way they paper it up, it is a legal loan because they stick a minimum payment on and a and a maturity date. 
but really they're trying to get paid back in two years, uh, one and a half to 1.8 times their, their cash. Um, they only do growth stage companies. Their niche that they focus on is tech companies, usually SaaS companies that have recurring revenue, but no assets. So they're not bankable, uh, not on a venture path. So companies that did not raise money from venture capital. Uh, and these days they're probably doing some series Bs as well, where the company just doesn't want a series B from VCs. They would just like to turn it into a, a, a cash flow company. Then the third version is the one that Fledge uses. The cash flows are again, exactly the same, but we call it revenue-based equity. A lot of people call it redeemable equity. Uh, I've heard a whole bunch of names on this. I've heard structured exit as well in this, in this space. Uh, I just call it revenue-based equity. Uh, we buy some shares. So again, if we did $100,000, we would buy a certain number of shares. Let's just say it was 100 shares at $1,000 a piece. And then in our stock purchase agreement, that would be paragraph one. We're buying for $100,000, we're buying 1,000 shares. Uh, paragraph two says, and then the company shall be required to buy back 500 of those shares, so half of our shares, uh, using 4% of quarterly revenue to determine how many shares. So there's the rev share piece that's built in uh, at a price of, and then it'll have a price per share. Uh, in our case, it would be $4,000 a share. So we bake in, it sounds like a 4X, but it's not. We're baking in a 2X on half of our investment. So you have to spend four times the, the per share price to get to 2X. Uh, and then further down in paragraph two, it says, and then when that's done, those other shares that are left over, we call those residual shares, right? So again, they bought back 500 using revenues and the other 500, we say, well, uh, whenever the investor asks after the first bunch are bought back, then uh, we can ask them to buy back the second half of the shares, second 500 shares for whatever they're worth then. So in that case, we have some upside if the company grows uh, and terms to be determined then, right? Um, and, and there's some more in there. Like it's supposed to match what we just did unless, unless they want to buy it back quicker. And so we're aiming for a three or four X return on our entire investment. Uh, and so in our structure, two reasons why we do the equity version. One is we have the ability to get past two X because um, we're investing pretty early. And the second one is that uh, you have to worry about who, who pays the taxes in these, in these methods. Uh, and in the interest bearing and in the revenue share or the revenue loan version, then the investor's getting ordinary income. So they're paying the highest tax rate possible. And in the, in the equity version, you're getting capital gains. That's the lowest tax rate possible. Uh, and so I like paying le less taxes. So I do revenue-based equity. And that's it. It's as simple as it is. It, it fits on a few pages. It's not a complicated structure. Great. Um, that's, that's very interesting. And, um, you know, we, we at Untapped Global uh, have a uh, revenue sharing model with most of the SMEs that we invest in. So um, we, we're big believers that uh, that's a very effective way for those companies that are, as you said, not Facebook or Google, uh, but don't have the big blockbuster exits. And um, it's a really good way to get liquidity as well for investors because we can turn some of those around very quickly. Yeah, so which, which version of that do you use? Just a straight up rev share or something that looks like a little Straight up rev share. Yeah, and I say it's not for the next Facebook, but even the, like the Facebook angels had to wait 10 years to get their money out. So yeah. a lot of them probably sold on the secondary market for a nice multiple. But I bet you, you know, in, in, uh, in foresight, not in hindsight, but in foresight, 
a lot of them would have been totally fine taking a 2x early. Uh, absolutely. Taking a 2x after three years and then only getting, you know, 50x instead of 100x on the rest of it. And, you know, what I like about the structured exit part of it is that you can, you can get a little bit of both, right? You can get the early liquidity, but also some of the longer term upside. You know, my experience as a as uh, an investor, both an angel and as an LP, is you know, most of these um, big blocks for wings or just even exits take uh, minimum five, seven years. Um, so you're going to be waiting quite a while for, for some of those larger exits. But some of those larger exits are really big, and uh, you want to be want to be part of that. And then they're really, really, really rare. So and the really odds, rare. The odds of an angel true. finding one of those, and, and odds of, I can talk about one that just popped in Africa for me, but... Uh, but it, it took me 40 tries to find a few that popped, right? If, if yeah. you're just an angel investor and you're just doing a handful, odds are you're not going to find any that, that go big. And the ones that popped for me popped in terms of revenues, not in terms of acquisition. I have no, in, no expectation that they're ever going to get acquired, but they jumped. I had one jump last year from 130K in 2019, $130,000 equivalent per year to 1.4 million in one year with what about $65,000 of investment. And, and, and we, I think we also need to look at this from the entrepreneur perspective as well. I think it also helps in aligning interests um, better for companies that are not necessarily looking to um, become the next Facebook Google, but rather to build a strong proven business, healthy business. Uh, and not distort their business plan or their go-to-market because they're trying to meet unrealistic expectations. Yeah, about, exactly. uh, growth. So that's very interesting. All right, well, I'd love to hear what, uh, Gita, what you and, and uh, some of the others might think, uh, Christoph, what you, you guys think about uh, some of these models and what other models you see in the market. Um, the model that Lumi has uh, described is really interesting for me. And it's interesting for me because the last place I heard of it was with a group of uh, entrepreneurs that uh, I was speaking to in East Africa. And uh, this was a, a sector analysis that I was doing. And the issue that they were having was, especially given for small amounts of capital, they were finding it really difficult to just work their way through the requirements of uh, applying for this uh, capital. Uh, or in the cases that it was provided, uh, just going through the entire legal process. And this was as true of uh, bank loans as it was of equity investors. And so, you know, Lumi, what you've spoken about, I think makes a lot of sense, especially for the smaller businesses. Um, and that's where I think it, it's, it gets interesting to get a little bit creative. And, and talking about creative, a conversation I was having earlier this morning was with somebody around the creative industry uh, on the continent. And my mind immediately went to, um, you know, a number of us, I see Rajas on the, on the call as well, had invested in a company called Ampit, um, which ran uh, Take Back the Mic Africa uh, last year. Uh, and that is very much in the creative space. It's the data and the creative space. But the conversation I was having this morning was actually not about that but it was smaller entrepreneurs, including, by the way, artists. Um, there's been a, a real rise in appreciation and uh, in the uh, commercials associated with, with artists in Africa. Uh, and uh, the qu question that I was asked is, would you back an artist? And I said, well, I'm not quite sure what that means. And the, uh, the pitch that was given was based on uh, one particular artist in, in Nigeria, visual artist, who within the space of two years of converting from being a uh, professional 
uh, with a master's degree from a top university in the UK, decided to, to follow his, his passion into, into painting. Um, and there was a two year period when he was going through that conversion and needed some funding uh, before uh, getting onto sort of the, the track of uh, regular art shows. And two years later, um, as an artist, he's extremely successful. So the question was, how do you even think about how to invest in somebody like that who needs the funding early on? And how does that later on translate into something which resembles financial returns? Uh, and, and what does volatility look like? So the, the, for me, what I'm kind of interested in, especially over the course of this year, is potentially looking at a few of these transactions, which are very unusual because there is a lot that's being done in fintech. My, if I look at my portfolio, my personal portfolio, at least a third of my portfolio is in fintech. And so the next fintech deal kind of looks like the previous ones. Maybe the, the region is different. Uh, the, the elements which may be different about the, the company itself, but the transaction kind of looks the same. Um, so I'm quite curious this year to experiment and see what other models can be used and how that allows me to be able to access entrepreneurs who would otherwise not be as accessible. There is a lot of hype around some entrepreneurs. There's some entrepreneurs who I think are very good about being very visible before a fundraise, uh, but it means that we kind of, uh, for, for many of us, we, we run the danger of flocking towards them. So I, I'm looking at the creativity gym in terms of the structuring to help me unlock access to people who I otherwise would not necessarily have seen uh, and have come across. Wait, hold on here. So you mean you're investing in fintechs outside of Nigeria? That's amazing. Just kidding. No, that's, that's... There, there is life outside of Nigeria. <laughs> no, that's very interesting. And and you know the uh, the artist um, backing model. That's that sounds very interesting. You, you definitely we need to definitely talk offline about that. That sounds like a, that might apply to not just artists but other potential. Uh, you know, athletes and, and things like that as well. So I'm um, very curious to hear more about that and how you structured it. Sorry, Jim, just a, um, just a follow up point on, on that. And creative, the creative space is on my mind because it's not usually on my mind, but somehow over the course of the last two weeks, there's been quite a few transactions which have been popping up. But in every instance, it's it, they've popped up almost apologetically to say, we know we don't fit into the, what it is that you and others we know normally do. Um, there is a, a textile uh, business in Francophone, West Africa. Um, and I got a call and I was asked to speak to the entrepreneur. Um, and same thing, this entrepreneur has, has built her business using personal savings. And she's already uh, actually uh, providing uh, textiles to a major European fashion house. And banks have been chasing her. And she's just completely nervous about what it means to get external capital, but she knows that she does need some external capital. So she knows she's on the crux of sort of moving from one stage to another. And in terms of understanding where she is as a company, this is not a, you know, this is not a woman who has a tailoring business selling to a small group of individuals within her, uh, her city. This is somebody who's already in the supply chain for a major European uh, fashion house. And uh, so I, I, you know, something like that would just never have crossed my path before. And I've been thinking more and more about how uh, beyond the, the usual suspects, because we're all seeing the, the usual suspects in terms of the sectors and very interesting right. businesses in those sectors, but how can we go beyond that? Yeah, you know, just, just uh, you know, th that one entrepreneur might have been you know, somewhat apologetic about even raising the possibility of a 
uh, a different way of financing. But think about all the others who are even afraid to ask. So I think, you know, so much uh, opportunity is being left on the table. Um, so I, you know, I think one of the, one of our jobs is to make some of these models that you're, yeah, you're talking about, Rumi, that you're talking about, Kita, um, and I, and, you know, maybe even do a little bit of marketing around them, or at least some branding around them so that people understand, oh, that's what that is. And, you know, it's not always going to be the same, but at least people have an understanding of what that is in, in a very YC kind of fashion. Maybe we put some of those templates up for um, open source. Yes, yeah, so, um, so there is one right? now, or there's two that are sitting on Git, I think. Um, one is indie.vc. Okay. So there's a, a venture capital fund in Silicon Valley. They call themselves indie.vc. I don't remember what the real name is. That's the, that might be the real name, but that's the URL. Uh, and their model is- uh, I'm sorry, that's indy.vc? No, indie. Got it. Like indie films. Uh, their model's somewhere in this space too. Um, it's a revenue share. So it's a, they invest into a company and it starts as a revenue share. Uh, it, by default, it just it's just a straight up revenue share. You get a, a percentage of revenues. But if the company chooses to go down the venture path as measured by them raising a half million or million dollars of, of capital, uh, then it converts to be into that round. So in this case, it's, uh, and, and the terms are all sitting on, uh, on Git, so you can go download them. Uh, but just this idea that, especially for California investors, you don't know. You don't know if it's gonna be a, a, a lifestyle company or a venture company for real. You find out later on after your investment. There's another one out of um, uh, Austin, Texas, and I'm blanking on the name. Theirs is called three by three. And so it's an investment in the company and does nothing for three years. It's just a, a, it's convertible to something in three years, but you don't know what. And then in year three, or on, on the third anniversary, you sit down with the investee and you decide whether it's a revenue share or a convertible note. Um, and they've done a handful of, of these. Uh, and then there, and I don't think theirs is on the, on the web yet. And the one that, the other one that I think is published is um, Earnest Capital. Uh, and I don't remember where they're based, but they're, the, the lawyers that did the work is the same as the lawyers that work for Fledge. Uh, Earnest Capital is kind of like a rev share, except it's not sharing revenues, it's sharing earnings, where earnings are measured by how much the CEO is taking as a salary. So <laughs> the, the founder of that fund, uh, they noticed that when a company makes the transition from being venture scale to lifestyle, when they top off and, and stop growing, then it's the CEO that starts taking a salary, like they starts taking a real salary. And so they, they tie the share of, of revenues for real, but they just call it earnings uh, to whatever the CEO thinks that their salary should be. Interesting. Interesting. I think we should we can apply that to all our our, our uh, startup investments. <laughs> um, great. Um, so I, I'd love to hear from some of the others uh, on uh, on the floor as Jim? well. Chris, yes, go ahead, Raj. Well, Christoph was just about to mention something. Okay, but go on, uh, well, Christoph, go ahead. I mean, I, I just want to uh, you know comment on a couple of things that were said. I mean. Obviously, you know, I'm primarily an entrepreneur. Um, we look at this from two major angles. One, what's the need? You know, Africa is very early stage ecosystem. 
very early stage. So you still have a very large number of small company at a city, regional level, country, but very, very little number of company that scale up. Uh, so when you are in an early stage, you know, uh, level in your development, you, you, need, you need some funding, but that's, that's not all. I mean, the, the skills component part of what's required, the smart capital, so cash plus, um, you know, mentoring, development, coaching, whatever, whatever you call it, uh, is essential. Uh, the, the, the second thing we believe is key is, is the technology experience. You know, I think when you build a tech-enabled business or a tech business, you know, th this is at the core of what you do. And uh, you'd rather work with people who have learned a lot of lessons from making lots of mistakes, like us, for example, uh, than, than, than making those mistakes all by yourself. I mean, you will still make mistakes, of course, but, you know, you want to you wanna have sort of a of an effect of learning from prior experiences. So from the need perspective, our approach is to make investment with a blend of three components, uh, cash, um, skills development in, in, in many sorts of forms, hence the fact that we attach our investment to an acceleration program always, and uh, uh, you know, some technology services, so, you know, technology for equity type of model. We don't aim to substitute the capacity of the startup um, completely. I mean, we believe that every startup has to be completely independent from a tech stack perspective eventually, but we all know when you start and you develop an app, for example, Clubhouse only running on iOS, um, you're not going to have all the tech skills required to scale a business. Uh, you're not going to have a million dollar investment at pre-seed level. So you, you need to uh, make the most of what you can get. And that's, that's, that, is, that is essential. The other perspective of this all from a return perspective, um, you know, if you look at Africa, the last three, four years, uh, the, the direct investment in startups is more or less uh, in, at the billion dollar level, you know, uh, it was 1.3 last year, a bit more than the year before. So that market cap of, of tech startups in Africa sort of increased um, every year by sort of billion dollar and it's, it's accelerating. But most of that money, 90% of that money goes to the series B growth deals and so forth. So that means that the return is really created between seed and, and series A. Uh, I don't know what the return will be of all these um, investors focusing on above series A, um, but, but you know, I'm, I'm very certain of the return that we can generate uh, you know, in the seed to series A level. Obviously you have higher risk and breakage and, and, and some, some companies don't make it. But yeah, so, so our approach really is to try to both address what the need of this early stage ecosystem is and, and doing that, maximizing our return. And we are a vehicle that is completely equity based. So we don't have LPs, we have shareholders uh, and, and, and we, we invest our own cash in those ventures alongside tech services and, and skills and, and, you know, sort of a lot of mentoring and hard work with, with the entrepreneurs. And that model seems to be scalable. And, um, and that's key. And the other element I would like to, to sort of put out there, but I think we should discuss it, is where do the corporates fit in that exit strategy of these models? You know, another model we've seen, I don't know if you know, Jim, in Africa, in South Africa, is, is the SnapScan model, where a corporate sort of completely outsource a, a disruptive innovation, but with the provision to buy it back and bring it inside at some point, but giving it the marketing legs that it needs to just of you know scale up rapidly and that's a very interesting model for us to see and i think a lot of the future in africa will see corporates doing open innovation and work more more in startups to the r d as opposed to you know do it internally so yeah that's yeah that's we my definitely take see a lot of that uh, you know the, the snap scan where 
uh, outsourcing of the uh, corporate innovation. Uh, we see a lot of that here in the US as well. More traditional industries trying to be more innovative and outsourcing the innovation to, um, to, to tech startups in, um, yep. in, in the Bay Area and otherwise. I, okay, that's uh, very interesting. So, so Raj- Can I add? Yeah, Raj was just about to speak earlier. So Raj, go ahead. Jim, so I was gonna pick video. up something you, I was gonna pick up something you said earlier, which is, um, so all of these models, they sound great. I mean, you know, um, uh, Lumi, thanks for, thanks for sharing those with us. The, the challenge I have and I see all the time is that as soon as you have something new, it takes a lot of time for people to get their head around it, understand it. People yep. are very suspicious. Um, and, and how do you break that barrier down? Right. And, and, uh, you know, I could pick up one thing you said, you know, just branded with Y branded with Y combinated and you're fine, but I suspect there's something we can do along the way. Right. So, so for example, I think if we, perhaps, you know, if you, me, a few other people act in Africa saying, look, there are three or four different other models, right? And, and this is what they are. These are the three models that we have. And you got to work out for yourself, which is suitable for you. But this is a template document that we believe is fair and equitable for what you're trying to achieve. Today, if you go on the net and you search for a safe note, you'll find a hundred YouTube videos explaining what a safe note does how you calculate it, et cetera, et cetera. Right? I bet you, you haven't got anything for any of these documents because it's just not known. So I think the first point is that you need to get it well known enough. People start looking at it, considering it. And as an entrepreneur, they say, well, you know, I'm, I'm not restricted to just a safe note or a, or a convertible. I have three other choices. Today, if you go to, to an entrepreneur and say, yeah, you're raising a million bucks. Have you talk, thought about these three other things? They say, well, this is too difficult because they have to convince not only investors, but they convince themselves and their existing investors, then their team, that this is the right model for them. So I, so I think you're right about it being slowly, but I suspect we can do something to try and move the needle. I mean, I would personally be interested in looking at, looking at these different models, because I think you would, I would possibly be willing to fund some companies that I would not have funded, you know, on the traditional model. Absolutely. Sorry, the other way around. Yeah, yeah. so, so yeah. You, yeah, yeah, we, know, we, so we follow what you're saying. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Raj, yeah, I mean, you make total sense. I've, I've been doing this for eight years. I've been using this model for, for a little over eight years. And I've been speaking about it at conferences for eight years. <laughs> and eight years ago, when I was there saying, this is the model that should be used, uh, the only examples I could point to of others doing it was Lighter Capital, which is where I learned about it. Uh, and then it was a few years before I discovered this Tim Draper thing in London. And that's it. Like, there's a couple niche people that do it, but at scale, that was it, period, full around the entire world. Uh, and then I found a new venture group down in Mexico was using revenue-based loans, I don't know, seven years ago, six, seven years ago. Uh, Grand Challenges Canada started doing it for a little while, um, investing in Global South from Canada. Uh, and now I can talk about, you know, NDVC and, and, um, and Ernest and whatnot and things that are sitting on the web. It's picking up. It's, it's we're, 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 we're nearing the knee of the curve on this, but yeah, we need more conversations like this and more people talking about it. My comment earlier about uh, open sourcing some of this is, you know, one of the reasons why you have so many YouTube videos on, um, on the web for, you know, the safe note and so on is because, you know, they, they, open, they open sourced it. They, they actively yeah. try to get the information out and make it easy for people to adopt it. So 
Um, I'm definitely going to check out NDEVC, but uh, perhaps we can direct more people to that uh, and maybe even develop some of, or you know contribute some of our own IP to that pod as well. And just as a note, you know, yeah. look, um, untapped, uh, that's what we're trying to do very specifically, right? That's what we do do. Uh, not so much the open sourcing part of it, but uh, we do revenue share loans. And I, just as a comment to something somebody said earlier, we are able to turn around uh, deals in a matter of um, uh, you know, a couple of weeks uh, versus the usual time frame for you know multiple months for a legal process. So well, that's refreshing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's refreshing. You know, I, that's our USP, right? Um, yeah, don't go through that uh, hundred thousand dollar legal process. Don't wait six months. Um, you know, we let's focus on your your asset business model, not so much on uh, the collateral you can bring to the table. So yeah, I'd be happy, Jim. I'd be happy to 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 sort of help out and get involved in that. I think that's uh, yeah, yeah. Great. No, so, so that, I mean, just to mention on the open sourcing, Jim, uh, we we have a, a group of people that is now about sixty organization uh, founders, organization and, and investors working on this digital collective Africa uh, collective, and that they are working on open source. Um, resources, so there are all these safe notes, term sheets, due diligence checklists, list of investors, incubators, etc. Uh, are there? You can check it out on digitalcollective.africa. And I mean, we need more guys like you to to take part in this and contribute your incredible experience and knowledge. So engage on that; yeah. it's really valuable. Can you repeat the URL again? Can I add another layer? Oh, sorry. It's digitalcollective.africa. Gotcha. Go ahead, Vivian. Okay, um, so hi everyone. Um, thank you for letting me speak. And uh, Jim, I just wanted to say to everybody, on Untapped is amazing. I pitched last week. I got an investor within five minutes who's putting wow. in cash. So it's awesome. So thank you. Um, <laughs> thank you for that opportunity. Um, but you know, actually in another way that this room has been helpful is that someone from like three or four weeks ago when I spoke on stage, um, spoke with me afterwards and she identified a term I had never thought about or had heard before. Um, and I thought that that was an amazing, it kind of created this insight into potentially where are there gaps between in, you know, entrepreneurs and companies that need to be built and VC. And so she called me a systems entrepreneur. And so I had never heard that term before, but basically it's an entrepreneur that's not only obviously building a company that is you know, necessary, but they're having to invest in changing a system, right? Or creating a new way of doing um, things for all stakeholders involved. And so when I started to kind of think about you know, this concept and, and, and what that actually meant in the evolution of my own company, I, I completely was able to identify you know, working with the government, this, we had to create something that was brand new that they didn't understand, you know, working with the, um, you know, various stakeholders, you know, you had to train them to do something that they didn't understand. They had to do something completely different to be able to actually use our company. And so I think that one thing that potentially could be helpful for this conversation is, is it really that there aren't investment models or, or instruments, or is it that there just needs to be more layers of understanding of the different types of companies that have potential in an African context. And so I would think of it like this, like 
any company that's being built off of mass already investable invested infrastructure like fintech maybe that's like a one click company and maybe as an investor you like one click companies you like comp companies that can plug into something and then obviously they're scaling and it's just about you know the strategy behind how they do that and marketing and all those things and that's one subset of companies but what about all the various deeper layers of companies because i feel like you know, in this conversation I had with this girl, I was explaining to her how I tried to bridge the gap between the reality of what was happening on the ground and our investors who were asking for certain metrics and certain KPIs. And, and I talked to her about the, the pain that my team had to go through uh, to kind of jump through these hoops to make it look like everything is, is okay, even though we're doing these massive, um, you know, massively intense things on a daily basis just to build the system up fast enough to deal with where we're trying to go and so if someone really understood that from a deep level wouldn't they be able to kind of mix and match some type of you know investment strategy for a company like that versus having to create something brand new and just put a whole bunch of different companies into that box it, i feel like there just needs to be deeper layers of understanding of the different levels of companies and identifying you know how to best invest um you know with them or, or or beside them and then also that obviously leads to understanding the better resources um and ways to kind of help them accelerate you know i'll never forget you know kind of in my earlier years of building medzaf you know uh some of the large insurance companies global you know, I would sit, they would, I would fly out to New York and sit with their entire, you know, supply chain teams, their entire organizations, the top, you know, the top levels of these organizations. And they're just looking at me like, we need this solution to work. And then having a, an investor pitch the next day, and they're just like, what is it that you're doing? And why is it important? And so there's like such a huge, there's such a huge dis disconnect when you're kind of trying to build up infrastructure. So I don't know what you guys think about that concept. Um, I'll, of, I mean, I'll definitely jump in there. Um, look, I, I think with, this was discussed at the last uh, session as well. You know, at the end of the day, uh, fund managers need to sell to their LPs as well, right? It isn't just entrepreneurs uh, pitching their companies to the funds. Um, most larger funds have a lot of LPs that they need to pitch to and uh, make sure they can sell their investment thesis to. And um, a lot of times if you sell a certain investment thesis, you are constrained in what you can do moving forward. And so there, there isn't quite as much leeway as one would like to hope for many funds when it comes to the type of things and the way they invest in different companies. So I think uh, that's number one. And, and number two, you know, VCs like the pattern match. It's not about necessarily understand in detail or in uh, a very specific company. They may understand the sector very well, but uh, a lot of venture capitalists like the pattern match. So that doesn't necessarily bode well for complicated business structures. And I certainly feel you when it comes to pitching a complicated business model. Um, and, and I think the challenge as an entrepreneur is how do you pitch these complicated business models and sectors in a way that's easy to understand for investors broadly. Thanks for that uh, comment, Vivian. I, Gilberto, I know you've been waiting very patiently. I'd love to hear a quick intro from you and, and some of your thoughts on the topic. Hi, Jim. Thanks very much for the, the opportunity. I, I'm a senior partner in a law firm based in Brazil. 
my I work in my work is trying to to bring investments to South America, May in the agricultural sector, um, but in a sustainable way, respecting the environment uh, and our forests. But you know, I have some questions because you know I, I'm I'm very interested in, in I has I guess that Africa and in South America will have some similarities. And in Brazil, okay, our main concern is how to develop the agriculture, you know, to 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 to, but in a way of respecting the environment. And I've I've heard some news that in Africa, in Tanzania, you, you, they are starting, you know, to planting uh, soybeans in in raw lands. And I just want to hear from you what what's this movement and how in Africa, for example, are they you know respecting the environment and if, even if they are taking care because. This is very important you know, to use the capital in a way that to do social developments, to 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 bring a social economy, but also you know respecting the nature, the environment. This is my point. Thanks very much. Thank you for that point. And anybody in on the floor would like to respond to that comment uh, question. Jim, I'll take a first crack at this. Uh, Gilberto, about uh, six years ago the amount of capital that was going between Brazil and Africa was growing exponentially year on year. And it was very exciting for many of us because um, there are a lot of similarities, as you said, especially from the perspective of trying to address some similar challenges, but also uh, it to do so in a way that was inclusive of larger groups of the population. Um, and there's some very interesting things that have been done in Brazil. But I think that has kind of slowed down in the last few years. Um, there was something that was announced quite recently, if I remember correctly, it's towards the end of last year. Uh, there is a group called uh, Southbridge Group. Uh, so Southbridge and uh, Brazil Africa Institute have signed a partnership to bring Brazilian investors closer to African opportunities. So there are things that are happening. Um, some of you will remember uh, the, uh, the likes of Andrew Ali, who used to be the CEO of Africa Finance Corporation, who is the CEO of Southbridge Group as well. Um, the point that I was just going to raise in terms of environmental impact, um, a lot of the capital that has been invested in Africa, especially in the private equity side, has come backed by the development finance institutions. Uh, mm -hmm. They are predominantly the main capital providers. As a requirement of them coming in, they're very strong ESG requirements, environmental, social and governance requirements of every fund manager they back that then gets pushed down to every portfolio company that gets back. So actually, I would argue, uh, investing in Africa, you actually, especially if these are businesses that have received funding through this ecosystem, these businesses are way ahead of most businesses in other regions of the world in terms of consideration of environmental and social matters, uh, as well as governance issues. And the final thing I'd say on the G side uh, is that the governance code that was uh, developed in South Africa at the end of apartheid, uh, which is called the King Code of Corporate Governance, is one of the leading codes in the world because it makes the responsibility uh, of the company's performance and impact on, from an environmental and social perspective part of the fiduciary duty of the board, uh, which uh, is definitely not the case in the US or in Europe either. Um, and so if you're looking for a bit of peace of mind from that perspective, I think you should feel that peace of mind. Um, and the final thing I'd say from an environmental perspective as well is there's a lot of wide open spaces, uh, uh, philosophically speaking, uh, in terms of the, the opportunities set, especially around agriculture uh, on the continent. And um, 
IFC actually does a great job of publishing or open sourcing their, their, their content. If you Google IFC performance standards, um, you can see the entire, uh, if you will, guidebook on what companies need to follow to satisfy the performance standards, which um, is really around uh, ESG, around uh, social governance, around environmental impact and so on. Great, okay. thank, thank you for that. Thanks, thanks, thanks very much, Jean and, and Gita for this wonderful case explanation. Thanks for the opportunity and, to be here. And I think uh, one of your compatriots is also on. Carla, are you also from Brazil? Yes, I'm also from Brazil and um, I work with EB5 investment for foreign investors that wants to invest in the United States and uh, they can qualify for the green card. And I'm listening to this group because it's a very interesting um, dynamic the way you guys present the investments and, and talk about the variety um, of it. And we are trying to bring to Indiana, I'm in Indianapolis, Indiana, and there's some Brazilians that invest in AB5 and we're trying to get a more sense of bringing companies here. They're uh, more related to, to the nature and the green. Uh, we have one investor that does uh, vertical garden and vertical <clears throat> landscaping, I'm sorry. I have a cough and we are trying to bring him here to implement that in the city and the city of Indianapolis is actually giving a lot of um, support to new companies that come into the U.S. for EB-5 investment and uh, just listen to your group. It's a really good way to learn and see how do you guys are um, planning and uh, putting together all this information for investors. Gotcha. Thanks for joining us. Um, uh, Sade, I think uh, you've been on as well. We'd love to hear your background and your, your comments on this. Hi, thank you for inviting me to speak. Um, my name is Sade. I'm a medical doctor I, with a public health background. Um, I've worked both in the public and private sector in the healthcare industry. So I have a pretty good understanding about the value chain um, from a public policy perspective and also from private sector funding. I actually came up when I heard Vivian speaking and I just needed to buttress what she was saying because um, in from my experience a lot of times when um, you know from a policy perspective when a lot of funders are coming in um, investors wanting to invest in a particular project there is no clear understanding of the intricacies or the challenges that the innovators are actually facing not just because of the level of education and the level of transference of knowledge that they have to go through to get a good buy-in locally, but also the supporting government policies that would help, you know, that would create an enabling environment for them to actually push forward with their projects. Um, so in that regard, if just again, to buttress what she was saying, if it was possible, because if I look at the, the number of investors that come in, for instance, um, for healthcare projects, most of the projects are social impact projects and they require um, long-term perseverance for the, for the investors to get the re, to get the re, um, you know, the, the, the return on investment that they bargain for. If, if, if there was a model that would help sort of give them a better understanding and would, you know, again, maybe boils down to trust, um, a better understanding of the terrain, of the governance issues, of the social and social cultural issues as well that the innovators likely to face. Maybe it might give a better idea of the risk allocation and the cost of the risks 
that the innovators might be facing. Because again, the pop, in terms of population, the population is there for the, the return on investment. If it's not um, a short-term high return on investment that is being looked at. But if you look at it in the long-term, if you look at the population that we're dealing with, in, in a matter of time, it, it's, it's educating the population getting government buy-in to get the supporting policies and actually encouraging more innovators to come in if the investors are willing to take the risk and also willing to, you know, um, accrue or rather give the required cost of risk to the, <laughs> or to the, to the, to the projects that they, they intend to invest in. And, and I just want to say that, you know, Africa, Nigeria is right for investors. Um, but it would require a lot more, you know, trust in people like Vivian, you know, to 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 actually drive this forward to bring more investors. Because I know a number of you know innovators that are really skeptical also about going in because of you know having the right investors, the right equity sharing, and what's have you. Um, yeah, that's about all. Thank you. And this thank you very much, Ade, for the comments. Yes, I appreciate you joining us. Uh, Hicham as well, would you like to um, do a quick intro and um, a quick question or comment? Thank you, uh, Jim, for this introduction and for the room, really. Um, I, I was not going to, I was listening for a while and I wasn't going to say much until Vivian spoke about something interesting and I, it's something I struggled with for the past uh, few years. Um, I'm not in, in the look for, uh, for investment, however, I did uh, start uh, two startups in my ten um, in, the, in the past 10, 10, uh, 10 years. I was successful in one. I struggled in one. So anyway, so I have three. I put some like four notes here just so if I can remember saying them. Um, first one is um, when Vivian spoke about the system uh, like projects, and uh, I call them. I call it actually differently. I call it mission-driven projects. Sometimes you have uh, people that really believe in a project. Uh, where they give everything and they think it's something that it's an e-commerce website or just something punctual. Actually, some projects need to be defined as something uh, that will change uh, more than just uh, the system that is the behavior. So uh, we need to open for that, uh, for those uh, projects, we need to open more channels. Uh, and I think you, you can be uh, a nice uh, space for that. Number two is the, uh, you know, we expect entrepreneurs to do everything and understand everything. Uh, you know, entrepreneurs are ahead of science communities and they are considered aliens today. I think they, sh they should be, uh, uh, that's what uh, uh, Mr. Shad Sade uh, spoke. I'm sorry if I, I said wrong, but uh, he, he said something very interesting as well uh, about uh, having, uh, you know, VCs and public funds are really looking too much into uh, like uh, they they're more putting obstacle than um, than than working on the potential. And I think we need to show more than the risks. Of course, today the financial system is based on risk, but I think we should go further into studying the potential because sometimes we have to believe in potential. And I think uh, I think this also can be a space for that. Uh, thank you for this opportunity to share. Thank you for sharing your thoughts, Hachim. Um, Eli, David, uh, would you like to jump in uh, with uh, comments, questions, or intro? 
Yeah, super. Yeah, I'll do a quick intro. So I'm working on a, a global startup ecosystem map and a research center called Startup Blink. And basically what we do there might be useful for, for this discussion to understand where the hotspots of innovation. So we have more than uh, 1,000 cities that are ranked currently, the ecosystems. 36 of them are in Africa. The top three currently are Nairobi, Lagos, and Cape Town. So we're seeing uh, some very dominant cities uh, arriving from Africa, and there is always already an investment uh, scene. And yeah, I'll just say we're super interested to work in Africa. We're working a little bit with the IFC, with the United Nations, with the governments of Cape Verde, the government of uh, Somalia via the Response Innovation Lab. And uh, just fascinating to see how much potential you have in, the, in, in this specific ecosystem and also how many challenges there are uh, on ROI, on how to uh, get ROI for investment in Africa. And that's why the governments and the international organizations have to help in the beginning to actually uh, promote more investment because it is difficult for private investors currently to, to do their bit. I will say that what we've done recently in a project in Ethiopia, we've seen that the, the really nice vibe is that there are so many local problems that they're long hanging fruits that you can solve with technology that uh, it's pretty amazing to see how you can actually do things without going global. Even by solving a problem for your own country, you can make it big. We've seen a few ventures like uh, Deliveradis, like Ride in Ethiopia that are doing amazing things. And I'll just say that in the end, uh, one of the things that we discovered, uh, the African diaspora is super strong and they've built amazing, uh, amazing assets uh, outside of Africa. Uh, for example, in Ethiopia, in Cape Verde, uh, you, have, you have amazing diaspora. They are living in the United States, in Europe. Those people um, have the resources. If we uh, target them, and by, by we mean African governments and so on, as investors, they can actually bring a lot of knowledge and also wealth uh, for the African ecosystem. So I'm a great believer in diaspora investing in the, in the ecosystem. Thank Great. Thank you for that comment, uh, Eli. Uh, we, we are approaching the end of the hour here, and we are going to continue to keep this room open. But I, I know um, you guys, some of you folks might have other things to go to. So I, I wanted to give uh, some of the original panelists a chance to give their final thoughts and then uh, come back to um, further comments from Simon Harveen and Sarah as well. Um, so uh, Looney, uh, Gita, Christoph, uh, any, any final thoughts? I'll jump on in here. Uh, Jim, I think I'd like to pick up on what Eli was just talking about, which is the city ecosystem. As much as we talk about Africa and we you know, pull our hair out about it's not, it's not one, uh, one monolith uh, that we're talking about. Um, if you come down to it, especially from an investment perspective, it's actually a collection of a few cities. And uh, the more that we're able to look beyond those, uh, those dynamics of the city versus the, the averages that we're seeing associated with uh, the economic performance of the countries themselves, it, it starts to get very, very interesting. And to Hishem's point about um, risk perception, uh, Hishem, I, I come from the private equity side, so angel investing for me and the VC side has been a bit, a bit heart-wrenching because I have had to significantly reduce Heart my expectations. is a good word. <laughs> oh my God, right? Because the, my, my perception of risk uh, had, to be, had to be fundamentally changed. And Africa is home. So I wasn't coming with an expectation of risk based on, on another region, right? 
Um, so I think there's also this point of accountability and it's one that gets missed often and I don't think we talk about it enough. Jim, you touched upon it. At the end of the day, when you are taking capital from investors, if you are an intermediary, you have an accountability to those investors. And as much risk as we individually may want to take as intermediaries, at the end of the day, we have that accountability to be able to return capital. Otherwise, right. the ecosystem of building a pipeline of capital to come into the continent gets messed up. And we have been fighting that battle on the private equity side. Venture is still relatively new. And I really hope that similar uh, challenges are overcome in a different way. We cannot wait 20 years or even 18 years to get the track record on the VC side that we've had to on the PE side. And so for entrepreneurs who are out there, please know that most investors who are coming and putting their capital in, short of the investors are using, who are reaching into their own pockets, everybody else is accountable to somebody. The performance of the investments are, they're accountable to somebody. And therefore, as much as we may love the business, we may love the business model, we may truly appreciate what it is that's being done in terms of contributing to the ecosystem with a particular uh, entrepreneur, we may not always be able to make those investments from an institutional perspective because of those dynamics. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. Sorry. One of the trends that I see uh, that, that that's quite interesting is, you know, the rise of alternative. A lot of people call them alternative investments, but uh, various platforms that um, consolidate uh, smaller tickets and uh, allow um, your your non usual investor to be investing in asset classes that are usually re, uh, reserved for institutional investors, for example, and others. I wonder if that will change the dynamic of the risk profiles investors are willing to take. But uh, just a thought. Um, Raj, you wanted to jump in and say something? Or if somebody did, then maybe I missed it. Was that you, Raj? It wasn't me. It wasn't oh, me. sorry. Uh, apologies. Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll add on to Geetha's comment. Yes, please, Looney. Um, yeah, so you know, of, of the capital I've personally brought to the continent, uh, I've brought 10 times more through my venture capital fund. Uh, and I'm working on bringing 100 times more than that through my uh, holding company. Um, uh, you know, I'm a foreigner. I live in America. Uh, I've only been to Africa a handful of times in my life, uh, but uh, I see it as a great place to invest in. Uh, I'm convincing others to follow along. Uh, I'll give you three links for the audience. I, I wish, I wish Clubhouse had had chat so I could type this in. Uh, if you want to see the structures that I've been talking about uh, an hour ago, uh, go search Google for Looney, my name, and California Capital. And there's a talk I did at Sonkalp in 2019. And then not to cut you off, but just to add to what you're saying. So um, I think that our the Untapped team is going to be adding all the things you're the, the links you're okay. saying to the LinkedIn chat box for this event. So if you want to to follow up on uh, some of the things that Lumi is saying, please okay. go to the LinkedIn uh, chat box. So in, in terms of finding the actual details, um, uh, the only way this actually happens is when the investors take the effort or the entrepreneurs take the effort to go look up the details to see what the alternative is. Otherwise, they just fall back on convertible notes and, and, and preferred equity uh, or debt. Uh, and so I, get, I give talks at SongCalp once in a while. The last one was at SongCalp Global 2020. Uh, it's on the page called California Capitalism on my website. Um, Hi, can I come in real quick? Yeah. Go for, go for it, Shadi. Thank you, thank you, Jim. 
I just wanted to say, I mean, in terms of what Geetha said, I hope I'm saying your name right. Apologies if I'm not. Um, you are, don't worry, and thank you. <laughs> um, I, in, in regarding what you said in, for the PEs and the VCs, isn't there a way, like Vivian was alluding to, of beginning to have the conversation around where there is like a middle ground of um, securing your funds, um, you know, accounting, your accountability being secured, and also the possibility of, of, of you know, investing in this innovations just by the risk of, you know, having a better, I don't understand, I don't know how to put this, but just having a midway between what you're saying and what Vivian is saying so that we can have more social impact projects, more innovations coming out to the people that need it the most. That's just my thinking. So, and maybe so, from a PE perspective, there might be something else that we are not seeing because of our social needs. <laughs> yeah, but Shade, it's not even, it's not even social, it's not even social impact because my point is, is that if someone cracks this, then it, the, I believe that the returns will be bigger than what the typical African startup is, is returning, right? So I feel that, you know, it is in line with what investors are saying is their end goal. I just think what you're saying is true, is that there, there's this gap. And so who's gonna create the innovative way to meet in the middle? So, so here's what- And I use social impact, sorry, as just an example, cause that's what, you know, yeah. from my policy end, that's what I'm familiar with. But I also know, I'm also familiar with the other business side of it beyond social impact. So yeah, I agree with you. And I think we should have more of these conversations. Geetha, please. Thank you, Shade. Thank you, Gita. Looney, go ahead. Yeah, yeah. So, so here's what the entrepreneurs don't understand about the venture funds or the PE funds or any of the funds uh, is that we literally have to go and find investors too. Yeah. So all the frustrations that you have as an entrepreneur, and I'm, I'm both an entrepreneur and an investor. So I, I totally feel how hard it is for entrepreneurs to raise money, especially the entrepreneurs who are not white men, right? uh, who are not doing tech, uh, all the ones that are in this in this murky space that are, are not venture scale. Uh, I have exactly the same problem when I'm trying to raise money for you. Right? When I'm out raising money for my fund, I have all your same problems. Uh, plus, I am asking them to write a check and I can't tell them where the money's going to go. So unlike the entrepreneurs who say I'm raising whatever it is, 100, 500, uh, 500,000 million dollars, and here's what I'm going to spend it on. I'll go find more like them if you just give me some money. So they're taking the, the investors who invest through the funds are taking the risk that there are such companies out there that will look as good as the ones that I'm touting, right? And of course I'm touting the winners, I'm not touting the losers that I've had, right? The, the, the failed companies. Uh, and that's true all the way up into the PE field, right? All these funds that when you ever hear about a VC fund or a PE fund, they have investors behind them and they've had to go and, and knock on doors and turn over rocks and, and, and be frustrated trying to raise money. So part of my pitch when I go out to raise money from, from rich Americans is Africa's a great place to Africa's a great place to invest in as long as we don't do it the way that California capitalists do it. Here's the alternative model. Uh, here's some proof that it could work but I can't then show them that they're gonna double their money. And you know, I can't show them the investors who doubled their money already because it still takes, it takes years and years and years to do that. 
and I haven't been around long enough. So this is an ecosystem problem. No, I don't think there's a shortcut to growing the capital that flows to Africa in, this, in these models. It will take 10 years for the pioneers like my fund to prove that it works. And then we'll be out touting on Clubhouse and others in the mid 2020s saying, yeah, 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 we doubled people's money. Yeah, we, 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 it was, we had a 5X on these companies over here. Like when we have those stories, then, then it'll be easier for us to raise money and more money will flow. Absolutely. Wishing you a lot of luck and hoping that 10 years is less than 10 years. And yes, there's two things indeed. I want to also bring up, um, Jim, if, you, if you'll let me. Two, two quick things. The first of which is I, I actually disagree that we can't find different approaches here because this is a matching problem. It's actually about finding uh, in owners of capital who are willing to take the kind of risks that can be matched to opportunities and finding the opportunities that match the capital. So with that in mind, I think there's two things here that we really need to be mindful of. Number one, investing in Africa is not new. So these are the same debates we were having 15 years ago about the challenges of raising capital for SMEs, not tech-enabled SMEs, not tech-heavy SMEs, but just SMEs. And we made progress on that. So I think we need to think of ourselves as part of a bigger movement than setting a baseline, which is based on California-style venture capital investing. So that is the first thing I think that really needs to change. We are part of an ecosystem and we must recognize we're genuinely standing on the shoulders of others who have come before us, who have fought similarly hard battles. The second thing is, uh, Shade, we need to get more capital from the, ca in, from the continent invested within the continent. So that, with, with, uh, Luni, it is easier to pitch to someone who's from the region on the opportunities within the region than it is to go and find someone who's wealthy outside of the region and ask them to think about what can be happen with their capital. And, and we need to crack that. It's, it's easier to have that conversation, but we need to unlock that capital. And there is no magic bullet. However, especially on the venture side, I think, think about how many professionals we know. African professionals on the continent, off the continent, diaspora. When you start getting commitments, $10,000 checks, from professionals you know spend far more than that on one holiday. You actually start to see some of the innovations we want to see funded being fundable. Yeah, and I'm, we are I'm, building a sure. of future investors. So, so, I'm totally agreeing with you. I, I, in fact, I, I started a program called the Angel Accelerator. The URL is theangelaccelerator.com. And we are about to launch the first African Angel Accelerator uh, on Wednesday. So we, we're, we've been recruiting people and that that one is open to everybody. So there are Americans who said yes, there are Europeans that said yes, and there are Africans that said yes to that. And that's committed capital. We're, we're bringing money and training to angels. But basically, I got tired of waiting around for people to wake up and say, yes, I want to be an angel in Africa or Europe or the US or anywhere else. Uh, and so I've created a program to make more and make it easy for them to, to join. Yeah, Luni, there's actually great work done by the ABAN network, you know, that they've been at it for, for a long time. And I think you know, yeah. they have to own this. And, and you know, it's got to be managed by Africans. It is. So the partner running it is the Africa yeah. Venture Philanthropy Alliance. And we're, we're talking to ABAN. They're doing good work. The piece they missed is that they're in the Angel Academy, which is what they launched, there's no committed capital. And in the Angel Accelerator, 
to get into the program, you are writing a check and that check will be invested by the end of the program. So we're making you know, to, to angels. The, we're not to just the point of, of, of Gita to enable that, you know, I don't know if you, you heard what happened in South Africa yesterday, uh, but, you know, we used to have this system called a 12J fund structure, which basically enabled um, high net worth individual or, or people with some money to get tax deduction on the investment through 12J structure. Well, now, it was a bit abused in certain areas of the, of, the, of the industry, like in the real estate. So they are completely um, disallowed that stuff. So effectively, you know, there, there's no more incentive for those guys to rather support the entrepreneur and invest in, in local VC fund, which is also a major problem we have. Those guys lack funding. Uh, and they're going to keep trying to find other ways to, to keep their money or send their money offshore. And I think we got a real problem with African government at large, with some exceptions, Tunisia being one of them, to really build the incentive for the local uh, community to invest in its own entrepreneur, which is an absolutely essential building block, 100% with you, Italians. It's really a, a, a very important missing piece uh, that we see, you know. Um, so I, I know you've seen that in a private equity space before, but uh, in, in that tech sector, even in, in countries like South Africa, uh, it's a major problem. So, you know, what are we doing? What can we do to, to make government more sensitive about enabling that capital to flow in the entrepreneurs? Well, let's bring some other voices that joined us on board as well. Um, Simon, I think you've been waiting a while to speak as well. Uh, give, a, give us a quick intro and let's hear what you think. Thank you so much, Jim, for creating this space. Uh, this is a really important conversation. My name is Simon Okello. I'm in Seattle, Washington, but I'm from Kisumu, Kenya, right by Lake Victoria. Um, what I think uh, when it comes to uh, you know, investments in Africa and the models that can work. I think we have to go back to history a little and understand what kind of investments have been going to Africa and what are the impacts of these investments. I was raised inside an orphanage home that was started by my mother in 1997. So between 1997 to 2013, I was a beneficiary of my mother's work and they were investors. You know, donations are also investments and people are putting in the money, people are sending used clothes, people are bringing in food to feed over six kids that lived with us on a day-to-day -day basis. Then from 2013 until now, I have been running the same space, but I, I turned it into a creative hub that also has tech being infused into it. Uh, and I've also built a bridge between Seattle and my hometown Kisumu where artists and innovators traveling between the two places. That means that investors could also travel between the two places, especially because, you know, I've built a reputation for One Vibe Africa, my nonprofit organization in Seattle, uh, in a way that uh, I feel that what's lacking is a connection with uh, people like you and Looney uh, that I can work with to tap into uh, people who uh, have uh, major funding and resources uh, including Bill Gates, uh, you know, uh, I produced uh, Africa Day celebrations at the Gates Foundation the last three years uh, in a row. So uh, I feel that the expertise that is lacking and the connection that is lacking for many African entrepreneurs like myself that have been on the ground working and are now also interacting with the diaspora and living in the diaspora, uh, we have a lot of knowledge and, and we have a lot of uh, 
of, of also pain of the suffering caused by the lack of proper knowledge by investors and NGOs and, and startups that have come to Africa and really caused a lot of damage and uh, helped in creating the current na narrative about Africa that we all don't like. Um, and so my hope is for us to consider, for example, an orphanage home. You know, we were able to turn an orphanage home in Kisumu into a creative hub. How many orphanage homes exist in Africa? You know, maybe millions because aid is one of the biggest, uh, you know, uh, ways that money goes to Africa more than anything else. I don't know the exact numbers, but I know that I've worked in six countries throughout the continent and I've visited a lot of uh, orphanage homes in Monrovia, Accra, and I feel that if we could look into turning a lot of orphanage homes into creative hubs, into tech hubs, then we would be taking opportunities to the people that need it the most, the people that are most creative, the people that need jobs the most, we'd be taking these investments to the people and then involving uh, the, the diaspora in actually raising the funds because we need to tell the African story when funds are being raised, we need to be in the in the rooms where uh, the funds that are benefiting Africa are being discussed. Then we can sustain this whole process because uh, we are collaborating. Then we are not accepting, um, you know, any form of funding from anyone. But we are working together with them to raise it, to work with it, to transform Africa, and really to transform the world. This is Simon. I'm done speaking. Thank you very much, Simon, for that inspiring comment. Um, appreciate that. Any comments from the uh, panelists on, on Simon's comment? Um, I'd, I'd love to just pick up a, a particular point, which is until there are Africans who are involved in the investment process, it's, it's not going to um, yield the kind of results with the kind right. of approach in terms of representing the continent that we want to see. Uh, first of all, Luni, uh, I think the uh, the angel program that you guys are running looks amazing. So good luck with that. I, I genuinely think it looks amazing. I want to take a moment to just talk about the underrepresentation of especially African women within the investment space. They are very, very few, even on the private equity side, who have been funded. Um, so at the beginning of last year, I launched on behalf of the African Union um, and the UN Economic Commission on Africa, a fund of funds to invest in female African investors. And this was, for the most part, first-time female African investors, and um, we'll be providing training uh, starting on the first on the ninth uh, of April this year uh, for first-time female fund managers, which is going to be publicly available. So please keep an eye out for that. So Shade and um, even Vivian, if you want to see changes happen, it also needs to happen with more women getting into the capital allocation space to make those decisions. Here, here. Great, no, thanks for that comment. Great. Um, Harveen, any, uh, love to hear from you as well. Go ahead. Hello everyone. Um, I am, uh, uh, I'm uh, from Southeast Asia, so Singapore, uh, with uh, about 12, 13 years of experience um, seriously investing in the venture space uh, in different geographies. Um, to date, I've deployed probably about 25 million of my own capital, right? Uh, of which about um, between nine and 10 has been uh, deployed across various ventures in uh, Africa. 
um, right. pri primarily um, East Africa and South Africa. And, you know, these have taught me um, some lessons. Um, I've seen uh, up close and personal the challenges that African entrepreneurs go through to secure even basic amounts of money for opportunities that seem plum, right? Uh, you know, and why wouldn't anyone invest? And I think uh, some of my own experiences have given me uh, a litany of uh, the problems, right? A close look at the litany of problems, which many would be familiar with. Um, but, you know, from my own experience, um, fidelity is uh, often difficult to, uh, to find and it's not uniform across management teams. Um, and, uh, you know, there isn't this, this, this understanding of, you know, let's not create a bad impression because it will affect the next lot of capital that might be willing to come in. You know, legal systems tend to be of limited efficacy. Um, and with, uh, with almost all the significant markets in South Africa, it's, sorry, in, in, in Sub-Saharan Africa, it's important to, uh, to, to look at some kind of hedging mechanism to guard against um, a currency devaluation um, so that you can protect your, your, your real returns, right? Um, repatriation of capital uh, tends to be problematic in some markets. And even when it doesn't start out being problematic, can become problematic. Um, Follow-on capital is difficult to have visibility on. So, you know, you're taking a risk that a venture that you put money into may not be able to raise uh, next round funding. Um, and, you know, the, the, the significant local families in many of these economies um, uh, who, who often control very large businesses, sprawling businesses that are multiple sector businesses, they tend not to put so much priority into investing in other local entrepreneurs. You know, they, they buy land or they um, uh, expatriate capital out of the continent to sit mainly in Europe, sometimes in Singapore, Hong Kong, US, right? Um, so, so it's just a tough environment, right? Um, notwithstanding that, I, I still think that there are opportunities enough to, to attract people. And, you know, my future um, activity on the continent um, is really defined geographically by where I can find people whose feet I can hold to the fire. Um, to make mm -hmm. sure things don't go wrong or, or to fix them when they go wrong. And often this involves um, very long-standing relationships with people who also share an interest and are willing to put skin in the game themselves or maybe spend time on the continent or leverage their own relationships to contribute to either advisory or management positions or, or client development or you know, exploiting commercial opportunities. Right? So you can look at them and say, mate, come on, fix this, right? Um, and where I, where I don't find these, I, I tend not to give a second look at any opportunities. So, you know, where I'm looking at now is Tunisia in the commodity space, Nigeria in infrastructure and agriculture, um, and South Africa at a particular opportunity in rolling vehicle stock, right? And, and that's it for now, because that's just the limit of the people I can find at the moment whose feet I can hold to the fire, right? Um, I, I, I've learned enough that I don't want to invest third party money just because I don't want to be accountable to other people you know, knocking on my door and hassling me. 
about, hey, how come this investment's not delivering? Um, I, uh, I, I also tend to now look for opportunities that are early to revenue. And where I don't see a, a path um, for that, I tend to give uh, these a miss just because I'm not sure if uh, there will be follow-on capital to find. And you know what, what is also a significant deterrent for people coming from my region is that we have Indonesia in our backyard for those who are not Indonesian. And even for those who are Indonesian, they have the good fortune to be living in this monster economy, right? Which gives amazing returns where the people are generally high fidelity, um, um, easy to, to, to manage and you know, tend to have an obedience where if you map out a business plan, you know, they execute it, you know, provided you put in place the right supervision. So for us, you know, in, in Southeast Asia, now that Indonesia started going gangbusters again, there is very little incentive to go and chase 30, 40, 50% returns a year when we can get that like a two hour flight away with much less hassle um, and in an economy where you have easier line of sight on follow on funding because it's, it's already uh, been seeing investment interest for at least about 15 years uh, when I think the first really Indonesia focused funds uh, started to spring up. So this is my input respectfully, you know, I'm mindful of the extreme challenges that African entrepreneurs face, but really the, the waters have been muddied by other African entrepreneurs. Indeed, I, I, I agree on the accountability question. I think it's a very important one. And ultimately, I think it's echoed from earlier parts of the conversation as well. You know, LPs, I'm sorry, uh, fund managers are accountable to LPs, entrepreneurs are accountable to their investors. I, I think we often lose sight of that, um, that level of accountability and how important that is in building the trust uh, to, to move money. Thank you very much um, for that, Harvey. Jeffrey, uh, yes, go ahead. Yes, sure. Uh, hi, Jim. Uh, thank you for inviting me to, to, to the stage. I have a question for you and Raj. Um, you earlier talked about um, revenue-based or revenue share financing. I'm trying to set up something similar and I would I would basically love for you to both give me uh, maybe um, uh, some use cases. So when is it ideal to use revenue-based financing? Because uh, essentially just to give you a background of what I do, I'm building a startup that's driving mobile the mobile revolution through providing charging stations in public places. Uh, so when people run out of batteries, uh, battery on their mobile phones, they can, you know, lock their phones in there and, you know, charge for about 30 minutes to an hour and get on with their day. But this is a hardware kind of business. It's, it's capital intensive. And I thought um, because these are cash generating assets, the best idea would be to use revenue or revenue, revenue share based financing. But do you think yeah. it's an ideal? Um, so, so let me just jump in on that one. Then. And so uh, Untap Global, we have a investment platform uh, where we really focus on what we call smart asset financing. We're really trying to do exactly uh, the problem that you're trying to solve, which is how do you finance CapEx heavy investments? And so we have a very specific model where we do revenue shares. So uh, in uh, as an example, we would potentially 
share the revenue with you on, we would finance the rollout of the infrastructure you need for those charging stations, but then we would share the revenue with you. And because you have everything connected via um, uh, you know, sm your smart devices, we have remote control, remote monitoring, and also remote payments on that infrastructure. So we're essentially landing against the future revenue stream coming from those digital assets. So that's a very specific example. We, we apply that to um, things as diverse as water treatment systems going into grocery stores in South Africa. We do um, solar powered irrigation in Kenya. We do motorcycles in Mali. We do electric motorcycles in Uganda. And it's all based on that concept. Let's finance the CapEx and then let's use the revenue streams coming from those assets as the security for the revenue share loan that we do. I hope so, that's, so, uh, was is clear. It, so does it have a, a cap? So it, does it have like a limit? So do you, do you get... We, we take your entire company and we, we just take your entire company all together. No, I'm just kidding. No, it, it, uh, it, it depends on the situation, right? Uh, we obviously need to achieve a certain level of return um, for our investors and, uh, and level of liquidity as well for our investors. But um, we also realize that obviously the company needs to make money and there, there needs to be a strong incentive to grow. So we, we like to think that we can create really strong win-win propositions with uh, the operating partners that we work with that uh, manage the assets going forward. Hope that clarifies. Hey, Jim. Yes. Um, so maybe just I can add a little bit to that, and I want to respond to Harveen's comments. Uh, but just to add to that comment earlier, I think the model, the revenue model, really depends on the company and the return expectations of whoever is giving you the money, right? So, so I don't know what Jim's return expectations are, but his return expectations might be different to, say, someone who has got a more philanthropic outlook to something like this. So, I don't think there is a one size fits all, but it, no. I'm sorry, that's not being helpful, but it really depends on what the return expecting. But the, the principle I think is that you have some sort of mechanism where you first get revenue, then you get a return and then the company is yours, you can go and do whatever it is. And that allows you to scale, allows you to get on without being on the hamster wheel of the VC, uh, VC model. I think that's right. the principle. And, um, and to that point, Raj, you know, what, what for example, Untap Global, uh, we try to optimize optimize around a consistent return liquidity for for uh, for the capital that invested, and so we really look at that. We look at okay, well, how likely is that capital going to come back, and how quickly will it come back, so we can offer a guaranteed liquidity for investors. Go ahead, Raj. And, and maybe I can pick up pick up on Harveen. Harveen, nice to meet you. Uh, I'm also um, yeah, I grew up in KL. Uh, my half of my family lives in Singapore. I know it very well. Um, <laughs> and um, I'm also a recovering lawyer. Well, I'm still a lawyer, so we have lots of uh, common <laughs> points there. Um, uh, and I want to pick up on a couple of things, right? So I, I agree with you. Indonesia is, you know, a very, very um, exciting market. You know, in, in many ways, actually, it's got very a lot of similarities with Nigeria. And I think Nigeria is a very exciting market as well. In fact, uh, we've just done investment in Indonesia. And the more I look at the, the what's happening in Indonesia, it looks very, very similar to what's happening in Nigeria. You know, large population, um, you know, lots of opportunities in, in, in fintech and digital, et cetera. But the point I wanted to pick up with you was when you said, you know, 
this whole idea of fidelity, right? So I don't think you can judge fidelity by country, first of all, right? So I think it is something you just judge by the people you encounter. And I've, I've not seen any difference between you know, Indonesians as a group, versus you know, Africa Nigerians or Kenyans or whatever. And then the second point I want to say was that most of the investments in startups you're making are not actually in a company that's domiciled in the country of the operations, right? So you usually invest in a UK whole co or a Delaware whole co or even a Singapore whole co. And there's never been an issue in terms of getting money out, right? The, the issues getting money out is when you're actually putting money, when you're investing directly into the country. So, so you kind of, that's, in my experience, has never been an issue in certainly investing in startups. The issues you often find is when you're actually putting money in country and when and you're then you're trying to get it out, then you've got, I know South Africans got currency controls and you've got exchange, exchange rates, et cetera, et cetera. So I don't know what that helps sort of get your head around, you know, some of the issues you raise, but I just thought it'd be useful to, um, to give you my thoughts on that. Thank you, Raj. Great, thanks Raj, thanks Harveen. Um, so, so on to, we have a lot of people join us. Uh, Sarah, would you like to provide us a little bit of background and some, some of your comments as well? Sure, um, I'll be brief. Thank you so much for uh, hosting this room. It's very interesting. Uh, my name is Sarah Emerson, and uh, my background, I guess, uh, to this particular conversation is um, that I lived in Africa for 10 years um, uh, and uh, a few years in the Middle East uh, prior to that, but, but close to nine years um, uh, in East Africa and Kenya and uh, Tanzania, so um, uh, Habari Kaka, and um, um, I think, uh, uh, ah, yes, Simon, <laughs> uh, nice to see you. Um, so. Uh, and then after that, spending about uh, maybe another uh, eight plus years uh, as a global director based in the States, but then growing programs um, across the continent as well as globally. Um, the reason I share that is, is just to say that, um, you know, as a white American woman, um, you know, I have to just acknowledge that <laughs> despite having spent time on the continent, you know, I'll obviously never um, be African, but, um, you know, I think an important role that well, a role that was important in forming my own personal principles and approach to this um, that's been shared here as far as, you know, Af um, bringing in the voice of, of African communities. Um, and uh, as others have said, you know, not seeing Africa as a monolith um, is, um, you know, being seconded to uh, the Ministry of Health and Social Welfare by the former president of Tanzania, where I was actually mandated to uh, take a partnership-based approach um, and in some cases, it was public-private collaboration, and in some cases, the technical PPP. Um, so, you know, being able to center the public health outcomes um, for all Tanzanians as the, you know, North Star, but understanding that there needed to be the underpinnings of um, lasting impact, local country ownership, um, you know, solutions, products, um, you know, tools, systems, et cetera, that were, um, you know, directly applicable um, for the Tanzanian population. And so, you know, this was not going to be something I was going to be able to do, no matter how many years I would have spent in the country. And it turns out, nor was it going to be something that, um, you know, my colleagues uh, and associates in Dar es Salaam were able to do, the capital, well, the commercial capital city, um, despite being Tanzanian, because, you know, 80% of the country at the time uh, was in rural communities. Um, so I think that, um, 
it was a humbling experience, but just a, a really important reminder of bringing in, you know, whether it be voice of the customer, um, you know, voice of the end user, even if they're not the, uh, the payer, um, really from the earliest stages. Um, and again, I've highlighted this uh, for those of you that I've met before, um, but at the earliest stages, um, uh, really at ideation, because um, the leading research is showing that bringing in diverse perspectives, um, even from a design standpoint, is actually too late. And, and you know, I just, <laughs> I just want to underline it, you know, I was able to, and I have it on my bio, you know, yay, got awards, you know, the only reason we got awards and got to national scale was because we worked with all local Tanzanians um, to listen and um, not doing minimal viable product is a very different approach of using either paper testing or conceptual design testing, where we would watch people, you know, press on, you know, pieces of paper as if they're interacting with different systems. So um, there's a, in uh, the bottom of my bio, there's a, um, a bit.ly uh, uh, sort of path that uh, will take you to the Acumen Fund's free human-centered design course. And I'd highly recommend that anyone that's interested in human-centered design um, do take that. And just from a, from a fi financial standpoint and sort of the longevity of business investments, um, you know, I guess I would just share these these few things. Sorry to be so long-winded. I'll try to to, to be um, a little bit briefer. Um, it's just that you know I watched business after business after business come in, and and some of these were huge companies. You know, you had Millicom coming in there uh, with Tigo, um, uh, Vodafone, Johnson and Johnson, um, uh, a variety of different large companies coming in that just got it wrong. You know, they thought that they could translate. Um, you know something related to let's say healthy pregnancy from India and just translate into Swahili, you know, that, we all know that that just doesn't work. So the bottom line is that it's not only sort of the right way to build inclusive products, but it's actually the right financial investment, um, which, which I guess brings me to, um, to just a, a few um, final points here. I actually did. Um, I was listening to all of you guys, so I didn't really structure this. I apologize. Um, but, but really considering um, to, to all the points that you've made around the alternative business models is what can we take um, in regard to uh, partnering with some of these big multinationals, um, whether it's seeking, and, and again, I think um, uh, folks organizing this stage today, um, you guys will have a lot more info, info than me, but looking at where we can um, do some of these things, whether it's a, um, you know, a joint venture or some sort of a strategic partnership, et cetera. But, um, being able to combine resources where local entrepreneurs are able to build out specific services or products, et cetera, um, that some of these big multinationals are just getting wrong. Um, and this is how I view things. Five years from now, we know that, that you know, these multinational companies, who I'm not against necessarily, but they're continuing to come into the continent. I left Tanzania um, and I was funded by the US government centers for disease control and prevention. When I left, there was the, the double issue of chronic malnutrition along with now diabetes and at, at, at sort of the epidemic level, right? Um, we don't need to just sort of resign ourselves that five years from now, we're gonna be saying, well, you know, yeah, there's the diabetes, but you know, I guess that was because Coke and Pepsi, you know, brought the Fritos in and, you know, last mile distribution, they were really good at that. Um, we have an opportunity to help shape what the future of the continent and the health of folks look like because the businesses are coming anyway. Why don't, you know, want um, toward, you know, addressing social issues. Very last thing I'll say, sorry, is, um, uh, uh, 
there's a great, um, gosh, I'll see if I can find it. Um, an organization called PSI, it is, a, it is um, an NGO, uh, it used to be Population Services International. They wanted to bring in access to a certain product. Um, I'll say what it is, you may agree with the product or not. Um, so it was access to, uh, to condoms. And, uh, and this was when I was working in Tanzania. And rather than wanting to do as so many different organizations have done sort of through charitable giving or um, you know, well-intended corporate social responsibility, completely disrupting and sort of being anti-capitalist actually, such as Tom Shoes. I know they've addressed aspects of what they've been doing, but that aside, uh, that was a case when I was there. Um, rather than bringing the condoms in, they worked with the local Dukpilodawas, the little pharmacies, and leveraged their partnership and collaboration with different aspects of other NGOs, but in particular, the, the government, right, to start to do a massive um, behavior change communication program so that they're able to leverage um, partnerships and diverse um, funding in order to subsidize aspects of their value chain. I think that this is really the future of how we need to go. Um, and we could look at it in centering, you know, African-led solutions by African people um, you know, to address the current issues. It could be in the, you know, education, safety, health, um, because there's money from the governments, there's money from international NGOs and, and also from these different uh, multilateral organizations. Um, so how do we bring that all together in a partnership approach, but centering it on, you know, Africans and their solutions. So I'm really passionate about that, sorry, but um, I just think there's huge possibilities, um, but I think there's gotta be people on the ground. And uh, as we said, human-centered design, you know, I'll never stop advocating for. So thank you. Sorry to be so long-winded just to Sarah finish speaking. Thank you very much, Sarah, for that. A uh, lot, lot, of, lot of thoughts there to, to, to react to. Um, so yeah, no, I appreciate uh, everything that you have done and, and your, your passion around the subject of investing in, in local resources and local entrepreneurs, which I think is very, very important. We are, 40 minutes over the allotted uh, time. And I, I do want to keep this room open and keep continuing the conversation. But in case anyone does want to leave, uh, feel free. Um, and just a quick note, uh, we do have these Clubhouse conversations every week. Uh, and on some weeks, including March 18th, our next one, we have uh, pitch sessions where we connect international investors with entrepreneurs from emerging markets. And um, our focus next, uh, next month, March 18th, will be around blockchain crypto in Africa. And so for those of you interested, please uh, visit us at untapped-global.com and, uh, and you can click on the engage button to sign up for future notifications. You can also follow us on Twitter and uh, join and follow us on LinkedIn as well. So going on to uh, others in the audience here, uh, Kian, uh, love to hear your thoughts, a uh, quick intro from you and um, your thoughts on the topic. Well, nothing really interesting for me. Uh, I mean, the only thing is like, yeah, I agree with what has been said, like the type of capital is actually um, making the deal flow become the same thing. So unfortunately, a lot of the companies are just very similar now because everybody knows that, you know, you will only find money if you're into software if you're just replicating other models that have been working in other emerging markets. Power uh, matching, yeah. And yeah, it's power matching. So yeah, if, uh, we're, we're not really letting the founders actually go after, you know, fix the problems that are really passionate about. Uh, 
because they might be capital intensive. They they might not you know uh, follow the VC model, uh, and they end up you know following whatever the crowd is going to, which is Canvasade. And yeah, I'm trying to follow what alternative investment models are you know are being initiated and and love the job that you're doing jim with with untapped and the capex financing thank you kian um glad you could be here louise i'd love to hear from you hi jim thank you i promise i would pitch to you and what kian <laughs> just said <laughs> what kian just said about your win-win capex model i love that as well and i know that you are putting in all the right efforts with your team so that you make a true impact wherever you apply your um brilliance and there's um so many things that i want to talk about and i know that i could be here all day talking about them so i won't do it but raj mentioned your return expectations and Simon talked very passionately um, about things that are so idealistic for somebody who's coming around with their money and want to take it 10 times more in a short space of time. And Sarah, everything you said plus more, I totally um in your space, particularly when you talked about your particular value system that you work with. And there's something in this title here today that I think, Jim, you might agree with me when you hear how I read it. I, <clears throat> I see it as alternative investment models for Africa. That commitments to Africa. And it's that win-win that you talk about. And I think there needs to be a new kind of commitment. And again, I'm talking completely idealistically. I work with Accelerate programs. I work with investors. And I find that what happens is the idea is get your money out as fast as you can now if africa for want of a better description it were a startup would you have that attitude to its board members or would you come back and you'd say look something's not working here let's put more money let's plug those gaps instead of saying there are many pieces missing what about plugging the, the gaps coming back again, and then slowly growing your startup being Africa. Is there that kind of commitment? Or is it a case of put the money in and take it out as fast as, as you can? And so, so let me let me respond to that really quickly, just just because it's right on topic. I mean, I, I think that's what we're trying to do at Untapped Global, right? We're trying to fill in uh, the financing gaps, um, not just follow. I mean, by the way, we do do you know, your quote unquote typical um, uh, equity investments and seed stage investments, and um, we're, we're, we're LPs in, in, in a half dozen uh, venture funds in Africa, et cetera, et cetera. But we are trying to um, innovate. However, however, there's this balance that we've already mentioned on this call many times. Um, you can only go so fast when you're introducing new ideas and concepts, because ultimately, um, you know, a lot of what we're investing is our own money, but if you really want to scale, you have to convince others. And so until you can get the traction. Uh, it's very, it, it's very difficult to do that. So I think uh, uh, the intent is to treat Africa like a startup that you're already an investor in and you want to keep uh, 
keep um, cultivating over the long term. But you also need to be uh, realistic about the, uh, the the constraints that you have as a fund manager or as a uh, investor, even if it's your own money. Sorry to cut you off there, Louise, but I just want to address that very specific piece. Thank you. No, thank thanks for that that comment, Louise. Did you have something else to add? So much, and I won't. <laughs> <laughs> no, appreciate that. Oh, thank you. And we are ending, uh, getting close to the end of the second hour. So um, I don't think we're going to be able to catch uh, everybody who's on, on this list here. So what I'm going to do is we're going to keep this room open. And there are a number of people who are able to continue to moderate and host this. I will need to drop off fairly soon. Um, but I'd love to hear from another couple of people and then I will be dropping off. So Love to hear from you, Katrina. Uh, I know you've been involved with a number of the Nest sessions and uh, participated in the Clubhouse. So love to hear a little bit of your background and what do you think of this topic? Katrina Sheridan. Okay, moving on then to uh, Engu, and I'm sorry if I mispronounced your name. Engu, love to hear your background and uh, a little bit of your thoughts on this topic. Sorry, Jim. I uh, uh, would you go like ahead, to Yes, go ahead, Ingu, and then we'll go to Katrina right after. Okay. Uh, thank you very much for uh, for inviting me to the stage. Uh, my name is, and thank you for pronouncing my name correctly. That's very rare. So, uh, was that the right way to pronounce it? I, I wasn't sure. Uh, if I was to quantify it, I'd be like ninety percent correct. It's Ngu. Oh. Yeah. Okay. Great. Yeah. Good. That's enough. Um. Yeah. So I'm. I'm. I'm I was born in Cameroon. Uh, Yaoundé, more specifically. Um, I, I was educated in university in the U.S., so I have a double perspective. <coughs> and um, I've been listening to what you guys have been saying in here, and uh, uh, it's been very interesting. I agree with a lot of some of the perspectives, and some of them I, I would like to explore more. I'm not saying that I disagree, but I would like to explore more. Um, and uh, I, I would like to address something that Harveen said earlier, which I thought was very interesting. Um, Harveen was uh, referring to some of the infrastructural issues that uh, investors deal with when they try to invest in Africa. And he, uh, he outlined uh, fidelity, visibility, accountability. And uh, I thought those were, and I know someone had, a, someone had pushed back against that, saying that, I, I don't know who it was, but someone pushed back saying that, yes, 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 uh, uh, this is an issue, it's a universal issue. But, but I think that if we actually look at the situation with, with, with foreign investments in Africa, uh, I think that for investors to actually uh, get this confidence or, 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 or to build this stability where they'll feel confident to go there and invest in, in, in the continent, they themselves, I believe, would have to actually invest in that infrastructure to create that stability within the continent. So, 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 and, 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 and what I mean by that is that uh, a lot of the, the, the Western schools of thoughts, the sort of the capitalist perspective, the, the, um, the, 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 the idea of democracy, a lot of, these, a lot of these things are great ideas and they work really well in the West, but a lot of these structures and systems, we, don't, we cannot just copy and paste them within the continent. Um, I think it's crucial that we actually, uh, us as Africans and foreign 
entities that would like to invest in the continent, we have to actually work it together, I believe, to actually then design this underground infrastructure to create the stability so that you investors would feel confident to actually uh, come to invest there. So it's actually in your benefit to invest in this structural stability building uh, 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 projects that might not be lucrative right now, but would definitely help you create a stability where you wouldn't feel that, like, uh, not, not, I don't know how to pronounce your name, Naveen was saying earlier uh, about, 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 about fidelity on the continent and accountability and stuff like that. So, so I think if you're a corporation that's trying to go into Africa and invest in Africa or, start, or open a company there, I think it's crucial that you, you, you not just develop models to get more revenue for your company, or, but you should also develop systems that will, 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 will help the community in some way to regain stability. So if you go in a certain community and you want to open whatever bank, whatever thing you want to open, you should also have a different organization that, that is 50-50 within the continent that will be maybe, for example, educating the, the children in that, in, that, in that village. You know, there should be, it should be a dualistic perspective, not just an extractive sort of like, like, like system. Thank you guys very much for letting me speak. Thank you very much for that comment, Ingu. Uh, now, right, um, and and Katrina. Um, so we are uh, approaching the end of the hour. We are going to be ending the live stream and um, uh, official hosting the moderation of this uh, event. I think this topic is really interesting, and there's loads of folks on here. So I'd like to keep the room open and allow this conversation to happen among those who are still in the room. But before we end, and before we end the live stream. Great having everybody join us on this conversation. We have this conversation every week. Please follow us on LinkedIn at untapped-global and also on Twitter at untapped-global. And uh, you'll be informed of uh, all the events that we have every week, every month. And with that, uh, I will be dropping off. Goodbye, everybody, and enjoy the rest of the conversation. Bye, Take care.